0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome to Gear for Growth. This week, we're chatting with Chris Bates, who's a mortgage broker and financial advisor, and he's the founder of Wealthful. He's also the co-host of the Elephant in the Room podcast. We have a chat to Chris about some of the elephants in the room at the moment, the financial landscape, the lending policies around serviceability with the banks. He gives us some great advice about how to begin our planning journey, and we talk about property market fundamentals and drivers that ensure that we have a framework for analysing the properties that we purchase based on demographics and scarcity. It's a fantastic and illuminating interview with Chris. I think you'll really enjoy. Here's Chris. Chris Bates, thanks for joining us on Geared for Growth.
1: Our pleasure. Thanks for being
0: Kick us off, Chris. Who are you and what do you do?
1: Uh, so, I guess on the tin, I'm a financial advisor and a mortgage broker. I've um, been an advisor for 11 years and a broker for five um, and been running my own business called Wealthful um, for almost five years now which is pretty scary but um, yeah, all my clients are, are young families in their 30s, 40s. Um, I don't work with any clients you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s which is where most financial planners work. Um, it's all young families and a lot of it's around. You
0: know their their biggest problem, which is property. What can I just? I definitely want to jump onto our standard formula, but I'm interested in 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 the why <laughs> behind that. Uh, I would assume, from a financial planner's perspective, maybe just speaking crudely and uh, in in looking at the the business part of it, it's probably more financially beneficial to look at someone that's approaching retirement from a planning point of view. Is yep. that right? Yeah, I mean.
1: If you're a financial advisor and you're out there to make money, you would go where the money is and the money is um, pre-retirees and retirement. Um, people are just hitting retirement or post-retirement so you could manage their portfolio and um, traditionally financial advisors, that's been their value proposition is is managing money um, and pretending then they could do it, you know, tongue in cheek here, better than index funds or better than other fund managers and um, and then charging what you call the, an assets under management fee. So. I personally am not a fan of that model, I'm not really a fan of that type of advice. Um, I think an, an advisor's value proposition is much more than managing money and um, you know, when someone is hitting those ages, generally speaking, they've got one eye on finishing and dialing down and reducing risk and paying down debt and the advice is, for me, it's quite boring and um, hence why I don't like working in that space really. Um, whereas younger clients, you know, there's a much longer runway. Um, and we can actually start to, you know, set some things up that will make huge difference. I was going to say you term. would
0: be multi- multiplying the impact that you can have if you're starting early rather than at the end, you know. I, I guess not to say that financial plan- planner can't make a huge difference to someone in their, in their 60s or, or, you know, mid-60s, but in terms of getting a plan for someone in their 20s and 30s, the trajectory could be vastly different, right?
1: yeah exactly sometimes it's damage limitation when someone comes in their 50s 60s and make the best of what we've got and um unfortunately where things end up is completely out of the advisor's control um it's up to the world what the world wants to do between 2018 and 2023 which is out of everyone's control so um you know where it ends up and where their retirement ends up is, is, is is it's so hard to forecast and predict and Um, you know, the advisor usually takes the brunt of it when it's the market or the world that's going to control everything. So um, with younger clients, you know, it's all about the world your oyster. It's it's thinking things through family, kids, you know, work, you know, their passion, their hobbies, where they want to live. And, you know, the conversations kind of uh, can keep on going and going and going and we can kind of head in whatever direction we want to really. So, um, I mean, personally, I love to catch clients even, you know, even in their 20s as well, you know, um, who are buying their first home and um, to get them before they've even done that which is probably, you know, probably why I love the most really because, you know, there's a complete blank canvas and we then have to be, you know, we make that first decision right which can then lead into the next decision which leads into the next decision and we're always usually thinking, you know, two or three steps ahead rather than what's this property, let's just get something sort I of I love thing. it.
0: Well, we'll be your blank canvas today, Chris. Um, give us give us some some dirt on 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 Chris. Uh, the posters on the bedroom wall. Growing up, what what were we into?
1: I had a lot of posters. I was a massive Liverpool fan, and I am, and I'm happily can admit that today in December because we're nice. top of the league. Um, and yeah, no, I was a massive Liverpool fan. Basically, every single wall was covered in posters. Um, coming, all my parents parents are from Liverpool, and my family and. Um, yeah, I was just kind of crazy Aussie kid that was a huge fan of it. There you go. The I
0: guess it's a little bit more uh, serious than religion up that way. <laughs> yes, yes. So, <laughs> Even oh, had a little oh, underwear. All right. Well, I'm glad we're audio only today. Um, uh, talk to us about how you got started in, in property and, and what was your first investment?
1: Uh, so, I mean, in property wise, um, yeah, we bought a house, but I mean, I guess the first investment more broadly was. Um, I mean, I got into shares probably when I was 17, and I just started figuring it out and started buying things, and then I started buying funds and fund management uh, companies, and then I learned how to do margin loans. and So, yeah, I mean, was they were the first kind of investing that I really did. Um, was I mean, even in cars, I mean, on my first car I made money on, I've, I've made money on nearly every car I've owned, really, because I always try to kind of buy it and then sell it and try not to make too much gap in the middle. So, um, Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, from an investing point of view, but property, how do I get into property more broadly was, um, I mean, I I was a financial advisor from 7 to 11, mainly 2007 to 11 in the UK. And then when I came back from the UK, I wanted to continue as a financial advisor and join one company and then decided to leave that company very quickly. Um, And then, and then uh, kind of looked out the market, spoke to some recruiters and a, and a, one of those options was to join um, a financial advice business that incorporated property. And um, I was like, well, this is a bit different. I haven't heard of property and financial advice before. And um, yeah, I'll go for an interview there and then met the guys there and um, yeah, I was kind of like, well, yeah, they, they sound pretty good and they know what they're talking about. And I just took a leap of faith and just fortunately, they were a company with very good property ethics, um, which I didn't know what good ethics was at that time for property. and. Um, yeah, and that's kind of where it all kicked off. And that was
0: yeah, in well, 2007, and I, I think ethics is a, is a thread that runs fairly deeply through the things that you, you post about. Um, obviously, the podcast as well, which we'll, we'll touch on um, in, in detail as well. I'm interested in your, your journey sort of as a, as a youngster. You had a bit of a, an entrepreneurial sort of uh, thread. Can you, can you give us a bit of a rundown about the stuff you were into sort of um, pre-graduation?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I was always, I don't know why, um, and this is not, it's just, I guess my brain was thinking about money a little bit differently when I was younger. I would save my lunch money. I would buy other kids lunches (laughs) and charge them a fee. I would, you know, there was just ways of, however, I could kind of make a little bit of money and save, Um, you know, like, there's a family joke that we went out for dinner and um, they said, oh, Chris, you know, you've got to kind of buy everyone, um, you know, the drinks. And I was like, okay. And then, when they came around to me, I'd said I'd have water, you know, to save myself an extra $3. So, you know, I guess I, I would just always had that kind of a different money mindset. Um, I mean, I, I started selling, buying things on kind of Gumtree and, you know, markets and eBay and would just resell them online. So then, once I had a bit of cash, I would buy things in bulk that I knew were selling really well and I could make a little bit of a margin on it. And um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was doing all through high school. And, um, yeah and also I had a job at McDonald's as well, which was which was cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean that's kind of my initials kind of yeah, that's way pretty of cool. You were doing money, some I stuff
0: uh, before Gary Vaynerchuk made it cool. The, uh, I love the, uh, the the eBay stuff and the you know the garage <laughs> sales sort of stuff which uh, sounds like a, a revelation these days but uh, you're out there hustling back in the day talk, talk to us about um, your business That's now so so wealthful uh, as I understand it uh, as I mentioned the the big thread for yourself is 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 Avoiding the the sketchy sort of dodgy advice that's out there. Can can you can you talk to us a little bit about how we can be cautious and and maybe equip us with the questions to ask to to find a financial planner and interview them and make sure that their their interests are aligned with our own.
1: Yeah, so it's it's, it's a difficult um, journey and it's one that you can't rush. I guess with selecting any professional. Um, and you've got to really figure out what do you really want from the advisor, and uh, and what sort of long term relationship, or if it's a short term relationship, making sure that they're the right type of advisor that really matches you. Um, you know, I don't think going to an advisor that spends all their time working with older clients, if you're younger, um, you know, it's easy for me to say that because I only just work with younger clients. But a lot of advisors, I just think the advice you're going to get, or they haven't had the kind of experience, or the the they're not thinking about. You know, young clients all the time. So if you go to them and you're, you know, they're just going to potentially push you into what they want to push into older clients. And, you know, I'm dealing with a client right now and that's exactly what happened. She went to a financial advisor, they done some risk profiles on her and put her in all these funds and, you know, she's got it on emails that she wanted to just buy a property in two years. You know, she's 32, she's a young single girl and she's got this money that, you know, through work and they've went and invested in all these shares, which they would do to someone in their 40s and 50s. but. You know, not to a thirty-year-old. So I think it's all about picking the right advisor that is is suited to your needs and what and works with clients just like you. Um, and so, I, if I was what stage of life I was at, I would go and find the, the expert in that and and search online. Um, I guess there's a big a lot of question. Pick, anyway, you can charge whatever you want for you know advice and structure the way your fees. But I would really try to look for an advisor that charges you a flat fee and doesn't charge you what you call an assets on a management fee, which means that the more money that you invest, the more money that they make um, because it, it creates all these conflicts and whether you should pay off your mortgage or buy a property or whatever the you know, the, the best advice is they're going to be conflicted to potentially funnel money, um, you know, into whatever they're managing. I'd also try to avoid an advisor that pretends that they know where the world's going and that where stock markets are going to go or what's happening to exchange rates or, you know, is the Greek Greece going to leave the EU or whatever nonsense that they want to think that they know. Um, it's just not true. And you really want to go in an advisor that looks um, at strategic advice and looks at... Understanding behavioral finance and things that you can do each day, like little kind of actions and new beliefs and behaviors that can get you further um, compounding over a long period of time. So, you know, the best advisors that I know wouldn't have, uh, don't really pretend that they know where the world's going, but the way they structure your portfolio is that it doesn't really matter. You know, they keep the fees low, they keep it diversified and they keep on investing and keep riding the market cycle and compound it over a long period of time. And, um, you know, that, that, that's quite boring advice but it's yeah. actually probably in my view the And best you advice.
0: mentioned, uh, I guess, tips and, and tricks to, to, to manage money, hacks with saving. Is, is that where the, the wealth coaching side of financial planning comes in? Is that sort of an interchangeable thing in your view or, or is, is wealth coaching uh, a, a different discipline to financial planning?
1: Yeah, so I guess Wealth Coach is not really a professional, it's just really a word that I prefer to use because traditionally financial advisors and financial planners, is the whole mindset when clients would go there is they look, here's my date of birth and my income and my savings and you tell me what to do. And um, the financial advisor would say, well, I can't tell you, I've got to charge you $5,000 and then I'll go away, build this plan for you and that plan will tell you the best advice. Unfortunately, it, it's pretty pointless that exercise, I believe, because you know it's not going to teach you really how to manage your money. It's not going to teach you, you know, how to structure your loans or how to how to think about money or how to set goals. Or and this is where the, all the value is in going to see someone to help you think through, you know, your long term future. Um, the financial plan, you know, it's generally you know sixty, eighty pages. There might be five or six different ideas in there that have been built out into 80 pages because of compliance, and um, it's, it's, it's great because it might help you in these five different things, but it's not really going to really, I believe, change your behaviors and your mindset long-term. So Wealth Coach is really about stopping before you go into the financial advice and actually start to build all the right kind of foundations and the mindset behind where you're going and, and coaching someone through everything from just literally setting up their bank accounts to structuring their debt to you know how to save on a regular basis to you know how to think about insurance so it's more about coaching someone rather than You're a, just a brilliant them what
0: follow on LinkedIn for that sort of advice as well so I'd encourage people to to, to stalk you through LinkedIn and uh, and follow you up um, can you talk to us about what it was like being a, a planner during the GFC and and has that impacted the way that we plan um, moving forward or has it has it changed the way that that you invest or diversify is there any sort of legacy that is of of benefit yep.
1: I think so I um, so no, I I moved to the UK when I was 20 and uh, so I'd worked in a year as an accountant, as a trainee accountant, and um, you know, and I, I did quite well in that year, and I was kind of a few years ahead of where I probably should have been, and I could kind of see where I'd be if I was a few years ahead of that, and it wasn't very sexy. So I was like, well, I'm going to be doing exactly what I'm going to do now, but maybe on some bigger clients. And so I said, right, well, I'm, I don't really want to do kind of you know tax. Um, so then I joined fund ma- funds management, and I joined Platinum, which you know is still one of the biggest funds in Australia, and. Um, that that was kind of my taste of investment banking, and I was you know sitting there on the, standing there on the morning huddles and listening to Kerr, and you know listening to you know the way the world works. But in two thousand, that was in two thousand and six, the world was booming and stock markets were booming, and you know their Asia fund was up forty percent and etc. So it was it was pretty crazy when I was you know in and it would look like that everything was this easy. You could just make money, you could make money. And then in two thousand and seven, I thought right, I'm gonna uh, you know, move to the UK and um, become a financial advisor over there. So I did that, and then my first week on the job is when Northern Rock literally went under. Um, and so we were still at that final week of training, and we were talking about what does this mean, and no one had any idea of what was to come in, in 2008. Um, that was it was very interesting because I was working in actual retail banks where, you know, customers would use retail banks generally when they didn't. Um, have the money, or didn't have the, didn't think they could go to what you call an independent financial advisor and, um, you know, pay for a fee. So they would get this, you know, packaged up as free advice by the banks. And, you know, ve- people were very, very scared, especially when I went to RBS, which is basically the bank that went under in the UK. And we would have people coming in, you know, freaking out because they thought that the bank they could lose everything. So, um, you know, it wasn't 2008, 2009 happened and markets went down and then they went back up and um, but it was what happened in 2010 and 2011, the kind of the, the flow on effects of years of unemployment rising, businesses going bankrupt. Um, and that kind of had a big impact on me in just of the impacts that a recession could have. Um, but then in 2011, I moved back to Australia and I came back and everyone was just so positive and optimistic. and. I was just like, this is two different worlds, and I guess I, I kind of feel like that a little bit in Australia is that you know people in Australia haven't really seen that, and a lot of younger generation haven't seen what's like when businesses are shutting down and unemployment's going up, um, that they can't foresee that even happening, and um, whereas I'm I'm definitely could could see that happening here, and that's kind of my biggest worry is with with things like property is that if things like that happen, how would certain properties behave, and um, you know it's it's a to me, it's only a matter of time that something like that happens.
0: In saying that, you, you're actually a financial planner and a property fan, which doesn't seem yeah. like a very common marriage. Um, I, I'm I'm interested in in why there are so many financial planners that don't really sort of strategize property property as part of their plan. Obviously, there's problems with their ability to provide the advice or maybe clip the ticket, but um, yep. what, 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 is, is there a deeper reason for that and, 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 and why is property part of what you do?
1: So, I think that there is a number of issues issue there where you know, most financial advisors work with older clients and property is not really where you know they want to be investing because they've got a shorter runway. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you know they haven't been able to recommend it because of a licensee point of view. Um they're not trained on it. We're not educated on it. It's just not even part of um, financial advisors kind of you know toolkit, I guess. Um, the and next thing I guess is probably they haven't been paid to recommend it. So if you recommend to buy a property, um, then it takes less money out of their kitty to, to manage. So there's all these reasons why financial advisors have always, they'll talk the belief that the property market's are, you know, overvalued, it's gonna crash, you should buy shares instead or you should put money into your super. Um, and you know, they've been saying that for a long, long time and you only have to look at the returns of the property market to say that that's been wrong. Um, I guess for me, working with younger clients is their biggest problem. And it's you know, whether it's buying a home, it's upgrading, it's renovating, Um, You know, or it's even if you're thinking about investing, property makes a lot more sense to younger people because of leverage. And you know, they can go to a bank with a 10% deposit and borrow another 90% and then buy an investment property and, um, you know, and and have a million dollar asset growing for them, let's say, rather than a $100,000 share portfolio. And um, you know, if they do that well and successfully, um, you know, and they buy really top quality assets, which is the only things... Uh, my clients buy. they don't you know speculate on property. they only buy top quality assets. Then um, you know it makes a lot of sense for younger people. So that's kind of fundamentally where the the flaws are. and unfortunately to to learn property, you've got to basically switch off from 90% of the stuff out there, you know, the positive cash flow, the duplexes, the off the plan, you know, and I keep going and going and all this stuff is kind of noise and it takes away from the fundamentals of what a good property is. And I think it takes a long time for financial advisors to get to that point and then to actually go out and build relationships with buyers agents and understand and actually look on RP data and look at, go into the data and figure it all out. And so, there is a learning curve. A lot of advisors are moving that way and a lot of advisors come to me because they're like, Chris, I want to know more about property, kind of what can I do and, you know, I can help direct them in certain ways. The,
0: the property section on your website basically starts with the advice, stop, take a breath because getting it right is crucial. Obviously, you would see a, a number of mistakes uh can you talk to us about some of the common mistakes you, you see? You mentioned sort of duplexes off the plan, but in, in general, wh- where are people investing in property and getting it wrong?
1: Yeah, so I mean, since 2012 when I joined that company, which is Property Planning Australia, it's been 100% property advice. So it's been, you know, almost what, six, seven years now. Um, and I've probably been saying, you know, say five, ten conversations a week and you can do the numbers and it's, it's you know probably thousands of people I have spoken to over the years. And you know there are very common themes and mistakes that people have made. Um, you know generally speaking, the quantity over quality strategy has always failed. I haven't seen someone who's put a huge portfolio of you know five, ten, fifteen properties and um, and yes, and when you break that down, it's usually two of those assets that were the quality ones that did all the growth those other 10 or 13 and you minus them off and, you know, so the quantity strategy very, very rarely works. Um, and to actually build a quantity strategy like lots of properties that are quality, you need a lot of borrowing capacity and a lot of income um, and a lot of equity and people haven't really got that. So the people who have done the best have generally bought the least um, but they've bought the best quality and they bought them and held them for a long period of time. So they might have bought a house in the inner ring of, of Melbourne you know, in 2001 and another house in Sydney in 2004. And, um, you know, and it's it's usually high quality pieces of land in inner ring suburbs of capital cities that suit the family market and houses that are, um, you know, desirable, you know, in terms of where they're located because of schools and transport and things like that. So it's not rocket science, but what they've done is they've maybe bought a house and they've kept their original house and bought another house and then maybe bought an investment property. And then all of a sudden now they've got portfolios of, You know, four, five, six, seven million dollars and very low debt because they've held them for a long period of time. And, um, you know, they've also had a house growing tax free. So it doesn't sound that exciting, but they're the ones that I've seen that have done the best.
0: And let's talk about the podcast, The Elephant in the Room. You're the. The co-host with Veronica Morgan. For anyone that hasn't checked that out, have a listen to that. It's uh, to be honest, it's a far better podcast than this one. You'll you'll really enjoy it. Um, there's a couple of segments that always give me a bit of a chuckle. There's a really strong theme going through the podcast of sort of denouncing the dodgy advice and equipping people with information to stop themselves getting into trouble. W- would you describe that as the sort of main thread? Was that the real mission in starting the podcast?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, would, I, I get you know, through posting on LinkedIn mainly is that, you know, I sometimes be a little bit controversial. I'll say what I think out there. People then hopefully it helps people to think through what they're doing. And then at some point, then they say, well, actually, wouldn't mind talking to Chris about this? Because from what I can read, he's going to actually talk to me and tell me the truth, what I need to hear rather than, you know, just kind of tell me that everything's okay. And, Um, What I usually see is all the impacts of poor property decisions. So that's, you know, a lot of it has been off the plan apartments, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. um, You know, I've seen mining towns. It could be, um, you know, positive cash flow, granny flats, you know, buying rural kind of duplexes. Um, You know, I've kind of probably serviced apartments. Um, It kind of goes on. And um, unfortunately, you know, after seeing, you know, years and years of kind of, you know, poor outcomes and people just making one small decision, which was actually a huge decision, but just making that wrong by buying a service apartment over buying a house, um, you know, the, the impact on that decision has been you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I guess the property market's unregulated. Um, we've got lots and lots of spruikers out there pushing this you know down the throats of um, Australians and no one's out there really talking about it and actually just giving people... Um, much better advice and willing to, to kind of challenge it. And so that's where the, the whole idea of the elephant in the room, and that is the biggest elephant in the room, um, came from. And, you know, that's why we, we bring in experts that um, also, you know, have, have got that experience and knowledge. And we ask them questions that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have asked them, I guess. And uh, hopefully they, you know, expose it a bit I love more. It.
0: I want to, to move on to lending uh, as be remiss of me not to sort of yeah. pick your brain on that as a, as a broker. Um, the landscape's shifting, I understand, a little bit. We're talking now just pre-Christmas 2018. We might be going sort of live in January. So, you know, maybe the sands are shifting yeah. a little bit, but I think pre uh, the findings of the Royal Commission, there probably won't be too much. But can you talk us through the last year? What's changed with lending from a year ago to, to today?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I wrote a blog, it was March 17, so that was like nearly eight, only two years ago and um, I listed up all the changes that APRA had done to bank lending and bank policy and what the banks had changed. I think that was up to 20 odd, um, like foreign investors and interest only loans and investor loans. Um, I haven't updated that blog since March last year and I'm going to because it's been massive and I guess the, you know, fundamentally... Um, the Royal Commission highlighted something that none of the banks wanted to talk about, none of the brokers wanted to talk about. Um, and, you know, frankly, no one really wanted to talk about it. And it was probably that elephant in the room, which was living expenses for customers. And, uh, you know, banks were using automated models to approve loans. You know, banks were just processing loans on what you call um, minimum living expenses. And um, most loans were just going through and no one was verifying someone's actual living expenses. And what the Royal Commission did is ask the banks basically how are you verifying expenses and the banks basically said well we're not and we're outsourcing that to the brokers and then the brokers aren't and it basically, you know, my belief is it scared the hell out of the banks because the Royal Commission basically asked and said if you're not verifying expenses and then you're giving someone a million or two or five million dollars of loans and they default and lose everything, who's responsible? Is it... You Is it the lender, the borrower who borrowed all the money or is it the lender that lended it without accessing someone's ability to repay? And that scared the hell out of the banks. And so in about June, um, everything flipped and every application was, well, we need to find out about the expenses, we need to go through bank statements, we need to go through credit card statements. And it basically shut down all lending at the big four mainly and um, all the affiliates off the big four. and there's a few little lenders like uh, ING and um, Macquarie that you know, weren't taking, I guess, as active approach, but also were approving loans. And so they've been growing their market share really well over the last probably six months. I have seen a change in the last month, however, that um, they feel like all well, the banks have kind of got it now and a lot of the brokers are understanding exactly what's required and um, loans are actually going through. So even in the press, I, I kind of read in the press, oh it's taking weeks and weeks and weeks. Well no, we lodged three loans last week and they're all approved within two days. So you know I, it's it's kind of flipping the other way now, and banks are realising that you know we need to approve loans and we need to get them through. But I think the brokers are, are the smart ones, I guess, are doing a lot more work up front to make sure that when the bank is actually application is lodged, that it's going to go through. The biggest thing that I think for people who go next year into lending, um, you, every it hasn't happened yet, but it will, will, will happen from probably February, where when you lodge an application, the bank's going to need to see three months of every single loan that you've got, credit card, car lease, and they're also going to need three months bank statements for where you get paid, and. That's going to add up for your living expenses. So, you know, if they add up to a lot of money that you're spending each month, um, it's highly unlikely you're going to be able to borrow what you want to borrow. And um, the Australian consumer going to a bank next year, unless they're prepared, you know, they're going to have problems. And um, so I think next year is going to be a big year because a lot of people are going to go to the bank and say, I want a million dollars. And the bank's going to say, well, you've been spending six, seven thousand dollars a month. We're only going to lend you six hundred thousand. So, um, yeah,
0: it's going yeah. to be interesting. The um, the apra changes where we capped investor investment uh, interest only, yeah. I should say, and and investor lending as a percentage of the total book, um, obviously was a big. Lending. How do you sort of rate the job done by APRA? Um, what do you think the focus should be now from a regulator like APRA? And 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 how did that how did that impact compare to the serviceability stuff that was happening on the banks, sort of in parallel with that?
1: I mean, I think they did a marvelous job, to be honest. I think they targeted um, to slow the property market down. They targeted the people who were borrowing the most, and they said, look. You guys are basically leveraging up, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten times salary, which you could borrow at one point. um, And by, you know, let's say someone earning $300,000 of a couple, they could go and borrow $3 million of property, which is just crazy. Um, APRA basically said this is not right. And they also said that, you know, banks are not getting paid more for investor loans over owner occupied loans, even though they're more risk. They're not getting more money for interest only versus principal and interest. So, I think they've done a really good job just slowing the market down and and reducing, you know, in what investors can borrow. And we've seen the impact of that. And I guess when you've got a you know a speeding motorbike, this is kind of how I think about it in my brain. You know, you're speeding along on a motorbike and um, you're going you know ridiculous pace. If you then take a little bit, if you lean over a little bit over to the side, then it can knock you over and you can easily overcompensate the other way. And I think what's happened is the. APRA have done a little bit of a change, incremental changes. Um, but, you know, the big worry, I guess, going forward is if something like negative gearing came in, that to me would be the big thing that, you know, the market couldn't handle. And, um, you know, and, and APRA has already done what it's need to do is slow down the investor market. And I think going forward next year, they'll even slow it down even more because, you know, there'll be a cap on. You, know, maximum time to and that you, can you mentioned
0: negative gearing and, and because you're one of the uh, hosts of the Elephant in the Room podcast, I'm going to use that term under license. Um, negative gearing is a big elephant in the room. What are your thoughts on the policy and, and are your yep. thoughts on the policy contingent on the market? I mean, you're one of those people that thinks it was a good idea when the market was booming yep. and it's a bad now or was it consistently a bad idea and maybe more of a job of APRA to control lending than uh, a government policy?
1: So, I don't believe that everyone, you know, and and people on, you know, a certain amount of income should go and be able to just keep on building and become property moguls and you know we all know those stories in the paper of people buying 110 15 20 60 properties I just don't think it's right I don't think we live in a, a society that that's fair where people can just keep on leveraging and borrowing money under interest only interest rates and um, and just keep on leveraging and leveraging and taking out you know people who can't afford to buy so you know that's and, and that's not going to be possible anyway with the new APRA changes and I think um, you know the more and more that we tighten um, lending to people wanting to leverage which is probably a good thing um, and you know but if people do want to invest and you know we do need investors to come into the market because you know fundamentally the reason Australia hasn't had a recession is a lot of it's been because you know due to migration and and, and people coming here with money and people coming in with good education and um, and adding to our economy and um, and keep on bringing our economy forward so they if we've got a strong-growing population, we need to keep on building housing, and we need to keep building housing—not just to live, but also housing for people to live in. Um, and you know, you can only—you can already see like home, homelessness and social. You know, we've already got a severe undersupply of affordable housing, and so what we do need—we need investors to fund that, unless the government wants to fund it. So that's what investors do—is they, they basically create housing stock for people to rent. Um, the big problem is, is when people just do it for You know, selfish kind of personal reasons, and just keep on borrowing and borrowing and capitalism and the flaws of that. So, I think that it's it's the best way to do it is to kind of limit people on what they can, how much they benefit they can get. Um, And you know, the problem with doing it right now with the negative gearing change is that um, right now is that the property market's been priced with negative gearing factored Mm -hmm. in. If you take away negative gearing it doesn't make sense to new investors based at current prices. And you, you basically have to rewind the price back to a level that new investors would say, well, I can't get negative gearing, so I'm willing to pay this price. And unfortunately, it won't really affect the market. First-time buyers who want to get into the property market, it won't really help them that much unless they want to live in an apartment and a unit because they're the markets that will go down a lot. It won't be the housing because they're not bought by investors anyway. And so my big worry is that, you know, you do a big change like this and you basically kill the construction industry, which is, you know, one of the strongest parts of the Australian economy. But really what you'll do is you'll basically smash all the investors that have bought, you know, those apartments. or You know, and their mum and dad's and their 1st home buyers um, and those apartments will fall 30 40%. Um, and someone's, it's just, how bad does that get? And, you know, I guess it's the contagion effect and recessions and things like that. I just don't think right now when you've got, you've already done what you needed to do, do you need to then come in and basically, you know, play with the market with this big once-in-a-generation policy? Um, Yeah.
0: And and even though it's a, I guess it's a blunt instrument sort of policy, the impacts will be sharp in certain ways. You mentioned that, um, it's not going to be terribly helpful for first homeowners and I think that really is probably the motivation for the, the policy. I don't think it's necessarily a, yeah. a tax revenue thing, although they will mention that. But it's just, I guess, that's a kicking the can down the, the street sort of thing because eventually investors will be positively geared. So, you're, you're really thinking that, that the houses that most first homeowners are, are going to want to live in it will be sort of propped up by other owner occupiers wanting that same sort of yeah. real estate and it's really just the, the overexposed sort of off-the-plan units where – or or even suburbs where investors have have jumped in and they're the majority of, of homeowners, yeah. that's where the change will be?
1: Yeah, it's basically areas, and you can easily do this. You can look at the census, you can look at RP data or other platforms and figure out what percentage of these properties in this area are owned by investors. And that's the people who are renting um, versus people who own that live in them. And most good suburbs where people want to live are owned 70, 80, 90% by homeowners. And that means that only 10 or 20 or 30% are actually bought by investors. Um, The big areas that, and they're not the ones, so it's homeowners pushing the prices up there. They go to a bank, they can borrow X and then they compete for the property up. The big kind of you know, what people don't probably realize is if you can't invest and you can't go and buy multiple investment properties, what do you do? You basically go buy a home and so you can get it growing for you tax free and so what it's going to actually do is shift more demand for home ownership and less demand for investment and unfortunately all homeowners really want the same thing. They all want to live in inner rings, in houses, near train stations, near schools um, and there's only so many houses and we can't build more of them. So. What you're actually going to do is increase demand for home ownership, and um, you know that's going to really support houses um, in those areas that people really want, and that's what really first home buyers really want. They may not want it in generation policy, um, you know, in five years' time when the kids yeah. come along, and so um, you know their the end game is not going to be, you know, get to where they really want to get to. So. Unfortunately. Yeah, they,
0: they might not want it now because they're realistic that they probably can't afford it now but in five or ten years' time then that's that's still sort of the great Australian dream, right? The, the apartments are not necessarily as attractive as they are in other countries overseas where that's the only option.
1: I think if I was a developer and you would be building and you'd be you'd be building apartments and for families and you'd be making them you know, very family focused. It's just not what developers have done because they haven't needed to. And, um, you know, there's just been too much money selling to foreign investors and investors that just want to get the depreciation benefits and and things like that. And um, that's what's just propped up all these poorly built apartments that families and kids just wouldn't want to live in. You know, whether it's where they're located or whether it's the style of the building or the noise or the quality of the build or lots of renters around you that are having parties, They're just not suitable for families. And uh, until that sort of apartment stock is built, really the only option for a lot of families is to actually get a little house and a little bit of backyard and in a quiet street, that's what's really exciting them, and they want to work hard for. Rather than the,
0: an there apartment. seems to be this this strong idea. Maybe it's it's come from politicians. It certainly exists in the media that there's, I guess, a direct relationship between the investor and the homeowner. I.e., if if an investor exits, a homeowner comes in. Normally, a first homeowner. Do uh, do, yeah. do you do you do you think that there is a perfectly sort of linear linear relationship be, between the two? If if we kick an ex an investor no. out, do we get a, a first home owner taking their place?
1: I think you know, if every property was equal, yes, but the problem is that all properties aren't equal, right? So, you know, if the where investors are investing now, and it's very you know, these are high rise apartments, they're in areas like you know, Logan in Queensland, where you know, they're getting potentially good rent and depreciation, and they're you know, in the middle of nowhere. In, you know, house and land packages and things like that, but mainly their are apartments and units. And um, you know, th- when you take away a lot of those investors, you're not going to have the first home buyers really that excited to, to jump in there. And you know, it's first home buyers are the ones who've got the least to lose. And what they're hoping is that because it can't be upgraders, because if you you know you're not correct, they're going to create another home anyway available for the home market if they sell. So it's got to be the first home buyers that are replacing these investors and. The amount of investors out there, um, you haven't got that many first home buyers that once you start to see price falls that they're going to have the confidence to risk everything when prices are falling. And so um, you're only going to have to be able to replace it with other investors. And other investors are going to say, well, if I don't get negative gearing, then um, it's not worth eight hundred thousand for a two bedroom unit. Yeah. I mean, it's only worth five fifty. And so that's my belief is that if you were you know, in these areas where there are homes um and in areas those investors generally haven't bought, you know, in the last two years. They bought maybe three, four, five, six, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. And a lot of those are sitting on huge profits and they know they're good investments and so they've held them for a long time, these houses, and they're just getting a really good rent for them because there's only you know, a lot of families are forced to rent houses because they don't want to rent an apartment, they can't afford a house. And so, those houses in those areas that are owned by investors are probably just not going to get sold anyway. And because the price of those will stay strong, you're not going to create any more housing supply in those areas for homeowners. Um, And so, yeah, where they're going to create, where investors are going to leave are going to be in high rise apartments, and where homeowners, they're not going to want to buy there because they're going to know the risks. And so, um, and the houses that they want aren't going to come on the market so it's mm. um, it doesn't really work um, and so you know I guess it's a, it's going to be interesting to see what happens my gut feel the more I think about it and the more I read about it and the more I speak to people about it is that, is they're actually going to get in um, win the election because it's a vote winner because 85% of taxpayers don't own investment property and then um, a lot of them are going to be in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and you know they'll be thinking well it's better for my kids or my grandkids if we get rid of negative gearing so they probably will be a vote winner and then once they're in they they basically at the last minute find a report by somebody um that says that it's not a good idea and they say that we're going to do it in the next election or we're going to delay it two or three years to see what happens with the market
0: um, There's plenty of those reports around and uh, maybe even listen to this podcast. Wouldn't that be interesting? You know, Chris, Chris and Mike sway the shortened government into <laughs> postponing negative gearing policy. That'll be some of our best work. Um,
1: well, he's already kind of said that this week as well,
0: which I thought was interesting. It's like, oh, we're not sure if we're
1: going to do it this year if we get in. Um, we might do it next year. And I think it's the um, – yeah, it's already starting to – that's the first thing I've heard yep. them. They said that they're not going full steam ahead, and um, you know there might be some more things come out over the next, you know, three to six months that maybe it's going to get delayed till 2020, or um, and um, because they're, they're worried about the yeah. There's more of and it. more stories um, about
0: your typical yep. investor coming out, and and they're not the property mogul actually get a little help. um that that we think certainly there are a couple of them but it's a very very small percentage and then even people that don't invest a lot of their their net worth is tied up in in their principal place of residence so it doesn't take sort of a, a 10 or 20 percent drop for them to realize you know hold on there might be something negative in this for me um, I'm interested in 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 your thoughts on on property investing. You've you've worked with a a lot of investors, obviously with the podcast. You've interviewed a lot of experts as well. Mm. Can you tell us are there certain types of property or locations that you see the yep. most upside in for investors?
1: Yeah, so property. What I love about property is you know it's not about all about investors. It's actually driven by home buyers and owner occupiers and families and. You know, it's actually a piece, where, a place where someone wants to live and build a, you know, grow a family and, you know, have meaning and purpose and, you know, well-being and, and property gives all, you know, these things to someone's life. Um, and so, what you're really trying to do is, is is buy where that as as long as we've got population growth and income growth, um, there's going to be more people over time wanting that demand and and want somewhere to live that's going to provide all these lifestyle benefits. So, if you think about it like that, um, generally speaking. You know, if we're going to create our jobs long term, um, you know, we might be working from home and things like that. But generally speaking, you know, they're going to be getting created in our capital cities and we're not creating jobs in farms so much. We're creating more kind of knowledge job in the city. And so we're going to build these big work hubs in the cities of our capital cities. And, you know, what people are going to want to do is get to and from work really easily, um, have really good home life balance, um, have a big, you know, a little bit of a backyard and... um, you know, as if if Melbourne's population goes from five to eight million, and Sydney goes from five to eight million, then it's pretty clear where you know people are going to want to live because of work and lifestyle benefits. The other thing is, is those areas around the capital cities. Um, if you buy really well, you buy in areas that won't change. So you buy in areas that you know maybe have got really strong heritage overlays. They've got lots of beautiful architectural style houses. Um, you know, Federations, Queen Anne's, or bungalows and things like that. Um, they're beautiful streets you know it's going to be very hard for those suburbs to change because as soon as someone wants to cut down a tree or paint their house a different color you know there's a whole little community out there protecting that and um, you know the councils are also invested in keeping the price of the properties high as well because of rates and things like that so if you come back in say 30 40 years time um, you know, the areas around the inner ring that are, are very beautiful today, as long as you buy, you know, protect in the middle of those streets and good blocks of land, um, they should be very similar. And you can see that by looking at population growth is, you know, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, I think population's gone up 16%, but in Sydney, it's gone up 86%. So, you know, the population isn't rising that much. And so the livability of living in those areas is very similar to what it was, say, 10 years ago. So, you um, I guess when you're looking at property, um, I think you've got to always invest in areas where there's very few other investors um, and it's all bought by homeowner owner, owner occupiers. And I would really pursue relation growth and income growth uh, that really suit families um, because it's the biggest growing demographic. And it's also if you can make sure that that family most likely would have higher incomes and so um, and most likely both people working. Because then that means that if you've got two higher incomes with two people working, they can then borrow the most amount of money from the bank and then most likely going to be the ones, if you've got them competing for your property, if it goes up for auction and you've got three double income, high income families wanting your place, it's pretty clear why that's going to get the best price. Um, I'd also probably try to get some of a home that could suit the families with one child or adult children um, rather than just you know a little small one, two better sort of thing. Um, and, you know, in areas where they're not going to, you know, we've got architectural overlays. Um, and I, I think the train becomes more and more important the more people live, live in a city. Um, and I think probably four to 700 metres away from a train station is important. And then because you're aiming for the family market, you've also got to make sure that the schools in that area are pretty decent schools and are definitely, you know, it's, it's easy to get the kids to and from school in the mornings and afternoons. Um, that's fundamentally it. So you buy in areas where there's cat supply, they can't build anymore. You also buy a house that you know, got a very nice street appeal um, and it's got ability to renovate that's going to suit a family. You don't have to have it renovated. It could, someone else could renovate it. Um, and yeah, and then the only other market which I think is a really good investment personally is the ones who have got the money that are downsizing now. And so they're people who have lived in inner ring suburbs The kids have moved out and they want to sell out of their, you know, two, three, four, five million dollar house, and they want to downsize into something. And you know, they don't want to be spending their weekends in the garden and maintenance and things like that. Um, They've got a lot of money right now, and they all pretty much want the same thing. They want, you know, a pretty nice apartment or unit in a very kind of stylish older block with some type of view, or um, and they usually want a lift, and they usually want it around the. You know the premium suburbs that are you know suitable to you know older age people so um those apartments are really good investments as well because those areas they're not changing as well so that's the downside. there's of
0: some some real gold advice in there chris it's essentially utilize all of the demographic information that's available and there's a lot of it to source scarcity mm-hmm and there's scarcity in the demographic trends as well. So obviously those, those downside of markets, they're, they're going to become tighter and tighter as 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 we age. And obviously you mentioned families are growing de- demographic as well. So um, I think that's some great tips for, for people that are looking into areas where they're gonna get that scarcity and that's pushing the, the prices in the right direction.
1: Yeah, and, that's, and it might not happen in five years, and you know you might, you know, if you are in your thirties or forties though, and you're buying property though, it doesn't matter if it doesn't happen in five years. What you're buying property for, you know, personally is when you get to retirement. Hopefully, your home's paid off, and I think people need to have a real clear strategy on how they're going to do that. Um, and once they've got that, and they've they've maybe topped up their super with their twenty five grand a year, and I think you know, once you've got a bit of stability with your mortgage, I think people definitely need to not miss a trick with superannuation because it's the one thing that is going to de-risk them the most. Um, But then the properties that you've got, they're the things that you sell when you're in your 70s and 80s, when you run out of money in your super funds, you can't use any of your equity in your home, Um, you know, maybe you had some inheritance or not, but then you've spent that and, you know, you get to the final age of your life and you go, well, we need some money now. Um, That's when you sell these properties because... You know, and then so when you think about it, you might be holding a property for say, you know, from forty to eighty. That's forty years. So, um, and that and you haven't paid capital gains tax until you sell. So, the best way to buy a property, in my belief, is is buy really top quality, scarce assets and hold them for as long as possible, because you know, if if it's a good asset, you think why would I sell it in two thousand and twenty when I know in two thousand and thirty the suburbs are going to be exactly the same. Most likely, the population is going to be. 30 40% more um, and you know there's going to be 30 40% more people wanting it um, and so it's pretty clear um, you know the reason, love benefits we'll play the long
0: it. game um, can just just in in <laughs> parting chris um, <laughs> We, you just touched a little bit on the planning side of things. Obviously, as a, a financial planner, I, I certainly see a lot of property investors are, are a bit sort of more caught up in the, in the property, the specifics, the metrics, the yeah. the yields, the potential growth, and, and the planning comes a little bit um, second to that. Can you give us some, some tips on how to get the planning side of things squared away? It, should, should we start with a, I want to retire on X per year sort of goal, or I want to retire at... at at fifty-five or whatever, does it does it start with the goal, and we sort of go back and, and engineer it from 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 there forward? How, how do we do the the basics of a of a plan and get that into action?
1: Um, I think you could do it that way, and I had you know, the first probably five or six years of advice. I probably did it that way, uh, and it makes sense. You know, you figure out what you want to retire on and when you want to retire, and you work it back. Um, I just think that you know. It's going to, whatever that is, thats going to be a number that, you know, it's great and it can give you a bit of motivation, but um, it's also highly likely that you may work longer or shorter or investments might not rise as fast as you think they're going to rise and, um, you know, you might live longer than you might live to 95, not 85 and, you know, it's, it's so many variables in those numbers and, you know, fundamentally it's, it's a bit of a what if and who knows. Um, Personally, I think that, you know, there should just be a, a small number of things that you should really try to achieve. And that's one, obviously, pay your home off and probably try to pay it off by your mid-50s rather than your late 60s. Um, and so you have to have a strategy to do that. And I think the biggest risk there is is that you get to your 45 and then you go upgrade and take out another million dollars of debt. Um, I would get really comfortable owning a home and, and not just continuing to you know, chase that dream of a bigger and nicer home, and so at some point, say that's that. This is enough for us. Um, the superannuation, I think, you know, if it, there was always a question before where you say, well, oh, the cap's a hundred thousand dollars a year or fifty thousand dollars a year. Should I do twenty or should I do thirty or forty or fifteen? It's only twenty five thousand dollars per person in a couple now. And it might seem a lot, you know, if you're earning sixty, seventy thousand. But if you are earning, say, one hundred and fifty thousand, or whatever it is, um, you're not far away. And so, I would really try to encourage people as soon as they're on top of their mortgage to really try to get as close as they can to that twenty-five cap. Um, and then, I guess it's it's just them, I guess, looking at your incomes and your servicing and saying, look, you know, we're on top of our mortgage. Can we just go and buy one really good investment property? And, you know, those three things, you know, should get you the vast majority of the way there. And, you know, I guess it's just figuring out, you know, what's the right numbers for you. And, you know, I guess it's, you know, you've also got to live life. And I guess it's that's the other part of the question here is that, you know, do you need to be, you know, you know, putting money away every month, you know, just focus on that if you're not enjoying life every day. And then I guess that comes down to are you spending Money and getting value from it, and so I kind of question clients there as well. Is well, you're spending eight thousand dollars a month. You know, are you getting value from everything here, or can
0: you? I love it. You know, and uh, live, I think I there was something that I read from you about um, you know living your life on purpose, and there's a there's a there's a bit to be said for for that <laughs> as well. How how can people get in contact with you, Chris, if they're wanting to to, to touch base with you and have a chat? Uh, yes, you
1: can just jump on the website, which is Wealthful Ful. Uh, um, and um, yeah, just reach out that way. I mean, if you use LinkedIn, that's probably the platform I use the most. I don't really use anything else. Um, so you could obviously listen to the podcast, but um, and just follow me on LinkedIn. I do try to post on there twice a day. And so hopefully that, you know, bit by bit helps people. Awesome. And, you know, and that's, that's if kind we could of finish off there.
0: with one piece of advice for property investors, what would that be? Oh, uh,
1: yeah. Um, really try to dumb it down property always and go back to the fundamental and it sounds really boring, but what's going to happen to supply and what's and what demand is it? So whenever someone talks to me about an investment, they're the first two things I'm always thinking about. So I go through, you know, okay, so what is it? Where is it? Is it a scarce asset? Are they going to build more of them? if they do build more of them uh, is yours going to survive is it going to be better than them or is it going to be worse um you know and really understand supply today but also what could happen to supply long term with council changes or you know more buildings and things like that so once you really understand supply and you really don't want it to to really change you actually want shrinking supply so they can't build anymore and they're actually knocking them down which is what they're happening to houses in the inner rings on a demand side You really want to make sure you hit the right demand. You know, like a studio apartment, who's that going to, who really wants a studio apartment? Well, 90% are investors, and then the other 10% are kind of singles that kind of just want to get into the market. So it's not a great demand. But, you know, one bedroom apartments, okay, a bit more investors, but maybe singles, you know, two beds, and really understand who really wants your property, not only today, but in the future. And so always bring it back to those two fundamentals and to demand. And have you got the
0: right mix? Shrinking supply and really strong quality, high income That's, a, lots that's of money, great man. advice. It's a real sense check for people that maybe have thought of the property first and uh, they're hell-bent on that. If they can just run through that framework, that'll let them know if they're on the right track or not. Chris, it's been a, a great interview. Thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Oh, that was great. You. Thanks, Thanks, mate. Yes.